Hello, everybody, and welcome to Our Future in Space. This is a very special podcast we're doing. We're calling it Spaces for Everyone. It's a panel discussion on universal access. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt. I am with Above Space Development Corporation. Um, I am a middle-aged white man with dirty blonde hair, uh, blue eyes, uh, round glasses, and I am wearing a gray blazer and a maroon shirt underneath. We good? It's rock and roll. Let's do it. Our future in space, brought to you by Above Space Development Corporation, with your host, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt and Eric Ward. I wanted to tell everybody today about this topic of universal accessibility and our wonderful guests that we have with us today. Um, all of our guests are spaceflight participants with Astro Access which is a project dedicated to promoting disability inclusion in space exploration. Astro Access has been busy training and flying disabled scientists, veterans, students, athletes, and artists on parabolic flights. And for those who don't know what a parabolic flight is, it's when you can experience zero G for several seconds at a time. And our guests here are gonna tell us, I'm sure all about that in the course of today's conversation. Um, I'm also joined today by Dr. Shana Gifford, uh, at the St. Louis School of uh, University School of Medicine, and she will now introduce herself. Hi, Shana. Hello, world. I'm Dr. Gifford. I am a pale-skinned person with brown hair and a blue Astro Access shirt. My uh, preferred pronouns are she and her. I am a physician at St. Louis University School of Medicine. My specialty is rehabilitation. I'm also a flight surgeon for the FAA. And I am the lead flight surgeon for Missing Astro Access. Thank you, Shana. And now I will have each of our panelists. Uh, and, and Dr. Shana is, is on today to help me facilitate because she has worked extensively with people with disabilities on Astro Access flights as well as in other contexts. Um, so I will now ask each of our panelists, uh, I'll call on you so that you know who's, who's next, to say their name, give a short physical description of themselves, and maybe one sentence on why you became part of Astro Access. And let's see, maybe we can start with Sheila. Hi, everybody. My name is Sheila, and this is how you sign my name with an S on my right cheek. I'm an Asian woman in my 30s with shoulder length brown hair and brown eyes and a light blue jacket that I'm wearing today. Uh, I've been involved with Astro Access uh, because I've always had a great interest in space. And I felt that Astro Access was really going to push the ball forward in terms of possibilities to be a deaf astronaut potentially, uh, and in generally including people to become astronauts with disabilities. I was also the co-deputy director of development for Astro Access. So that is my current and new role. Cool, thank you, Sheila. Doing amazing things. We can't wait to talk more to you soon. Um, next, let's go to Dana Bowles. Hi, uh, my name is Dana. I am an older woman, half Cuban, half Japanese. I have brown mid-length hair with this lovely gray throughout. And I'm wearing a mauve button-down shirt, short sleeve, and I'm wearing glasses. And one second. And 
I'm sorry, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I became involved with Astro Access because it seemed like the perfect fit. It linked two of my loves, and that's uh, disability court justice and space exploration. Dwayne, how about you? Dwayne Fernandez from Sydney, Australia, um, wearing the same shirt that Shana Gifford's wearing, just the logo seems to be on the other side. Um, I'm sitting in a backlit background. I'm a brown man with, um, with a headset mic and a little bit of messy hair by design. Um, and um, I came into Astro Access's um, second flight um, program after hosting uh, regular shows on a club uh, on a, on Clubhouse around display inclusion and throwing questions to people in um, small steps, giant leaps, where we were talking about display inclusion in space, and people used to stay up and listen. And so they all suggested I jump on board and uh, apply to be an Astro Access ambassador. I was lucky enough to um, be a research lead on that space. Um, and while I'm not there, I have a day job where I focus on display inclusion in the employment, infrastructure, and service delivery in Australia. Back to you. Thank you, Dwayne. And last but certainly not least, Lucas. Hi, I'm Lucas Rodelli. I am uh, around 30 years old man. Uh, I'm white. I have a beard and long straight hair. And that's probably one of the reasons why I got the nickname during our Astrax mission as Space Jesus. Space <laughs> and Jesus! <laughs> and that's how the Astraxes folks, well, some of them, um, some of the enthusiastic ones like Dwayne are calling me now, uh, at least inside the project, because outside the project, I also got another, I'm from Brazil, and I got another nickname that also stayed uh, through the ages, which was the Brazilian Daredevil, but that's a, maybe a story for another day. Um, I got involved with Astraxes, so I am a software engineer, uh, and one of the things that I'm super interested in is making sure that people with disabilities can be involved in uh, science, uh, mathematics, engineering. Uh, and I think um, space exploration is just one of the perfect settings to actually promote this kind of inclusion uh, because, of course, there's a lot of math, there's a lot of science, and there's a lot of engineering going on there. Um, so I was selected to be an Astraxis ambassador for Flight 2, and, uh, and here we are. Oh, amazing. Uh, and I know that uh, you were not the only people the a part of these two Astro Access flights. There were, what, almost two dozen people who were involved in uh, in the total flights, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 16 of us from a variety of different disability types, um, including neurodiverse, uh, mobility, dexterity, um, hearing, sight, and um, yeah, that's, the, that's a lot of us. Mm. And then if you include from the first flight, then you get to two dozen, right? Yeah. And each of them had a ground support person. So you're, you've got a full aircraft there. And Shana, uh, I don't want to focus too much on you, but you were on one or both of those flights. Is that right? I was on mission. I was on board mission two and on the ground for mission one. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can lead off our next question. Um, All right. So the, the first question in the question list that I have after we're all supposed to be giving our, our names is to talk about the challenges we faced over the years. 
And uh, perhaps we'd like to start in the reverse order that we just introduced ourselves. So we'll start with Lucas. Lucas, can you tell us some of the challenges that you faced over the years, just being the human that you are living on this planet and the environment that we've built, which doesn't always make it easy to be any human, but in particular, a person with disabilities? Maybe because I am an engineer, I like to approach things as data. And one of the things that uh, is hard being a blind person in the world is that it's not always that you have the information you need in an accessible format. So as I was uh, alluding to earlier, I'm very interested in making sure that people with disabilities can access uh, mathematics, science, and engineering, and all those subjects that sometimes is very hard uh, as a blind person to find materials, for example, like in digital format or even in Braille and other formats that are accessible to us, uh, they are accessible and we can read and consume and you know just study as everybody else. Um, so I think there are ways to solve this problem and this is the kind of thing I have been trying to do. And uh, mm -hmm. am, I, am I always very optimistic? Because I think, I think that things are, are improving a lot. Mm, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, maybe you could just quickly give an example of something that has improved significantly since you know since you've been uh working on this uh this topic yeah so for example um mathematics um there's not a very good way of representing or there was not a very good way of representing mathematics on computers uh, so what people did was they use i don't know like latex or some other software and what the software did was convert like uh equations into images and images they were not very they were not accessible to screen readers, which are the programs we use to read things on a computer. Uh, nowadays, uh, people are starting to use more MathML, which is a standard to represent mathematics on computers, and you can display that on browsers and other ebook readers. Uh, and MathML is because it has semantic information about how mathematics uh, is being written there. Uh, screen readers can consume this information and present that in audio or braille. So this is like a very good improvement uh, in my opinion so far. Cool, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about how you would represent a complex equation, you know, to somebody who can't see, but it looks like there's ways of describing it using this, this system that, uh, that works for scientists and engineers. Yes. Wonderful, now if it's okay for me to skip a little bit below to Sheila, I'd like to make sure that I am pronouncing or demonstrating your name correctly. I know it's the S against the cheek. And does it look, does it look like this? One, one swipe? That's right, Sheila. All right, Sheila. Would you be willing to tell us a bit about some of the challenges you faced over the years? And if reflecting like Lucas, you feel like things are improving and you'd like to give us maybe an example of such, that would be great. Yes, well, I was born deaf. So that has been, uh, and there have been many large challenges, specifically the challenge of access to communication. When I'm trying to communicate directly to someone, um, especially when I'm trying to navigate a certain environment. And I believe Lucas gave a very good example just now about struggling to access pictures. For me, it's about trying to access audiological content 
information sound in the space. That's the largest problem. Videos that might not be captioned. Uh, podcasts are still quite a challenge right now, um, trying to utilize a script in place of the podcast. Uh, those types of challenges. I do also see improvements um, over the past many years, but we still have more to go. Um, in terms of social capital, accessing networking for deaf people, that is quite a challenge to access uh, the opportunity to network and meet with other people, which results in a loss of opportunity, um, uh, losses that could lead to better jobs, better employment opportunities, whatever. Also, incidental learning is a challenge. Hearing people don't always have to learn things directly. They learn things incidentally from their environment, which deaf people don't have access to. That's an additional challenge. I know for myself, that's something that I still struggle with. I have a variety of challenges that I use. However, I try to make sure that there are interpreters in those social settings whenever there are networking events. If I'm at a dinner, for example, sometimes it's very powerful and very helpful to be in those settings. So I make sure that I have sign language interpreters. Um, there are some biases about cochlear implants. Um, I think people don't necessarily mean to be mean, but sometimes, oh, sometimes people have, excuse me, the interpreter is going to correct the interpretation. Um, talking about sometimes uh, biases that people aren't necessarily aware of, that they harbor, but they might not be intentional, but they do harbor those biases. Those biases, when they're not realized, can really harm people, whether we're talking about people who are deaf or any person with a disability. Um, people bring those biases that they may or may not even be aware of that they bring to those settings. So sometimes when we try to understand how people think and how deaf people are, until a deaf person shows up in a setting, it's difficult for people to really envision us in those spaces. So I do believe that in this world, we still have work left to do, uh, specifically about those hidden or maybe unknown biases. The first step, however, is to start to know your own biases, and that's how we begin. Thank you, yeah. Sheila. I really appreciate that. That's a great lead into Duane, whose work is in the field of inclusion at work. So Duane, please tell us, if you could, about some challenges you personally face and then some of your work in maybe unraveling those hidden biases so that they can be addressed in the greater world at large, and in this case, space as well. Uh, so I'm someone with a physical disability, missing a few fingers on our right hand and a couple of legs, both of them. But um, but with regards to disability inclusion and just riffing off uh, Shayla and Lucas for a bit, is that Shayla actually has uh, the ability to be focused without being distracted. Unlike someone with ADHD who's like, oh, let me get a little bit lost here and there, which incidental learning is great, but then that's the advantage that she brings. It's a case of you want to focus on something, switch off, laser focus. And uh, that's something that I will have trouble doing all the time. Um, and that's just the ADHD in me. But um, I grew up in India, um, and as someone with a physical disability in India, which is what it was first noticed more than the uh, ADHD, um, it became a case of, well, what's the value, right? So that's the thing that people see. What's the value of a, an additional disabled person in a population of 1 billion? And so migration occurred. Uh, my mom was smart enough to go, let's get out of this country um, and figure out what we need to do. Not that India is problematic in any way, shape, or form and all these things. It's a case of 
for my individual kid. I need to take care of them. Where do we go? Um, Australia wasn't the first place. It was New Zealand. And New Zealand is where I grew up uh, in in those formative years of when you identify yourself as a person. And in those years, I actually did not have any issues with being bullied or harassed or things of the nature. New Auckland was a city, I think at the time, all, all of New Zealand was a 5 million person city. And Auckland was like a million person. And I went from 25 million people in a city to a million person city. And you're wondering where are all the people? But inclusion occurs, and there were people from all over the world, and it felt at home. And before my leg amputation and after my leg amputation, it just felt like they were there to take care of yourselves. The disability unit is in the heart of the school. So you go to the physical disability unit, get what you need, and then go into class. And therefore, society saw us from the school age and all the way in through the rest of that spaces. And so I know what belonging really feels like. And so all the work that I've been doing, driving disability inclusion with regards to employment and infrastructure and services is going, what was that feeling that I felt in New Zealand? How do I bring that here and for everybody? And so once you know what that feels like, it actually is, your focus is just there. And so it allows you to Think about crazy things like uh, building a company that plays Dungeons and Dragons and Minecraft to help build those social communication skills for the neurodiverse community. It helps you um, focus on breaking down the understanding of what you need to build into the infrastructure environment for our mobility and our visually required uh, comrades so that we can navigate the space safely. And it allows you to scale it for general society because you'll see in this space, there are subtitles. And subtitles are something that are built for, well, someone in here. Uh, and that's how technology works. Apparently, if you're scrolling on Netflix these days, about 60% of us have it with subtitles on. And uh, that's that's just the world. The more inclusive you are of our community, the better society becomes. Back to you. Thank you, Duane. That's great. And you know, thinking of accessibility as for all humankind, right? The curb cuts, the closed captions. Everyone wants to be seen, heard, understood as who they are, where they are. And I'd like to segue that into Dana, uh, who's done some amazing work as who she is, where she is, in an environment that sometimes can be friendly and you know, sometimes less so. Dana, I'd love it if you could tell us about your experiences and your challenges and how it has been working uh, in the space industry. Yeah, um, I'm kind of glad I, I went last because it's good to hear all the different perspectives. I, you know, I was born, I was born with my disability. I am missing both arms, a few inches below my elbows and both legs quite a bit above where my knees would be. And so um, growing up was, was tough because I was, always being stared at, you know, and it always bothered me. And, and now, you know, I, I guess my coping mechanism was just, I learned to ignore it. <laughs> and some days it bothers me more than other days. But um, I will say the biggest challenge because my disability is so visible is just the idea that when people see me, you know, their automatic assumption is I can't do anything for myself. And that is so frustrating, you know, and and also, 
you know, they look at me and they're like, oh, well, you know, obviously I can't be a contributing member of society and, and all these things. And yet I'll offer people help sometimes and, and they'll like laugh it off like I'm joking, right? Because how could somebody like me actually help somebody who doesn't have a disability? And that's ridiculous. And so, um, so to me, the biggest challenge is just people making those assumptions and not being open to really learning about me and wanting to know what I can do instead of focusing on what I can't do. Um, now, I, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, and <laughs> no offense against Debbie, but uh, you know, I, I realize things are getting better in one in one sense, but I'm I'm starting to experience things that are getting worse. And one example is I used to be able to travel to any metropolitan area in the country. And with a little searching, I could find a vehicle with hand controls. Nowadays, it's like almost impossible. It's almost impossible. And why? Because the companies that were pr once providing the service have decided, oh, you're too much of a liability, you know? So now we're gonna force you to bring a driver with you. And that is just really, really mm -hmm. angering because I don't travel with anybody. I travel independently mostly. And now because I have to go to California, I have to drive across the country, you know? And so it's just those types of things. The biggest challenges to life every day is those attitudes. I don't deserve the same level of service that, that the ABs get, that the able-bodied people get. So that's a, that's the biggest challenge. So space, you said, how does that, how does that uh, relate to space? I think, I think it's the same thing. You know, they, people need to realize we are becoming a space-faring civilization, species, then, then people with disabilities have to be included in that because we're every bit as capable and diverse as our non-disabled uh, counterparts. Yeah. Absolutely. No, we, we, we hear you and we, we agree with that too. And that's why we're doing this panel because, you know, we see an opportunity to at the ground level before there are a lot of commercial products and services in space to be able to make it as accessible as possible and learn from people who have had, you know, a tough, a tough go at it, just trying to get around. Um, and because you care about it, you know, that's going to help a lot because that's the very first step of making anything happen is the people believe that that we're entitled to to have the same that everybody else has. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Well, riffing off that and knowing that no one in this room speaks for all the people of their category and that you don't speak for all people with disabilities, what do you see as some current barriers in the space industry? And how do you see that changing or maybe not changing? Maybe we can just stick with Dana for the moment, or should we? Uh... That's right. Yeah. Let's start with Dana and then reverse course. Okay. And I'm sorry, Shannon. Can, can you repeat that one more time? Sure. Uh, you just so beautifully outlined the first step, which is acknowledging the issue or acknowledging the situation, which is simply that people with disabilities are people. And if you want your industry, your technology, your rocket, to be universally utilized, then it must be universally designed. It's just mm -hmm. the first stage is acknowledgement, understanding. Right. And moving on to those next stages. So once you understand that is true, and everyone right. in this room is working on making that true, 
right. that, that realization, bringing that to the surface. Um, what are some barriers you see to the space industry, uh, to in the space industry for people with disabilities? And how do you see that potentially changing once we can sort of raise awareness? I think the, the biggest way, the best or the most efficient way that it would change and get better is to include us in, in every step along the way. I mean, there's a saying, nothing about us without us. And that really, it's really important because we're gonna look at a situation and, and know what to look, you know, and know what sorts of things to consider and what sorts of things could make it, quote, more, more accessible to more people. And so somebody who doesn't have a disability, they may have a good understanding, like if they say they have really important people in their lives, and they, so they have that understanding, but really get, get those of us with disabilities inserted into the process and that'll be an easier way to do it. And, and it helps to teach you to, to start learning what to look for. I mean, I'm, I've been looking for a condo for eight months and my realtor today knows like way more than he did 10 months ago when I first started with them. I mean, we automatically go into a unit and he's like, oh, you're going to look at this, you're going to look at that. And then and it's nice to see that he's really listening to my needs and, and really looking out for that because it, in the beginning, it wasted a lot of time not knowing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, empathy right, so. and I was just gonna interject, empathy and being, you know, being an active ally, I think can go a long way. Um, it can, but really include people too in the yeah. process and, and that could that could really help. All right, being open to learning new things and including disabled people, perhaps hiring them at your company, getting them on your board, right? Uh, inviting them to feedback on your designs. Excellent. Continuing in reverse course to Dwayne. Dwayne, same question. Um, what do you see as some current barriers and how could you see that changing, those things changing for the good? So because... Dana was on flight one, and I saw what her experiments were um, and what she was doing in that area. We defined an experiment that became the case of, well, are people with disabilities here on Earth actually people with disabilities in that space? And the answer to our question was, am I a person with a disability in a zero-G environment? And I did that experiment with legs mm -hmm. and that's my tall leg. Uh, and then I had to said there was short legs. And what I found is that in a zero-G environment, um, I was able to navigate the space more efficiently as someone, as a limb user. Um, and so the thinking over here was actually, why are you wasting all that money sending legs to space? You don't need any legs in space. You're floating around. Stop wasting money. And so display inclusion is actually uh, is actually commercially viable and sensible. And uh, with that in mind, um, you actually want people to focus in this area. And what that does is that if you're building for our community, and that's what we do, right? If you build for our community, you're actually going to improve, one, the success of your mission because in space, a disability is coming for you. It's hundred. It's a disabling environment, and it's coming for you. And so, what are you going to do? You're going to end the mission halfway through. You're going to expect only perfect people up there. Uh, what is this? Uh, the the previous war that was fought? No. Uh, you need to make sure that for your missions to succeed, you need us. We're the right stuff for right now. 
and especially if you're going through the stage of commercialization of the space industry, you are not going to have the old school, you know, Cold War thinking that my white right guy versus your white right guy to reach the moon. No, you need it so that a variety of people can sustain and live there and then survive that environment. And who has been surviving a harsh environment and identifying those things? Well, it's our community. Welcome. We're here to help you. The stick on it is that you're thinking about it from an American viewpoint. In Australia, our legislation is so strong that um, that when when it's not inclusive, we um, you know we address it, and to the point that space is a transportation and in and a accommodation uh, industry at present, and. We have in Queensland, there was a government uh, that built an inaccessible train. One person in a wheelchair sued them. The accessible, the accessible retrofit cost, which had to happen and did happen, was to the tune of $350 million. Wow. The question is which space company is getting sunk at $350 million? Or, by the way, is it that expensive to talk to a person with a disability? <laughs> if you talk to us earlier, maybe it's cheaper. And the answer is yes, it is. And that's why we do what we do. Back to you. All right. So taking on that point that people accustomed to navigating a continuously challenging environment may be the exact people that you want in a continuously challenging environment. <laughs> uh, Sheila, I would love it if you could tell us what you see as some of the current barriers in the space industry and especially bringing in the research you did on flight two, what might be some ways to navigate around those barriers, Sheila? Uh, yes. Well, I'm a grad student right now. I'm a dual degree student, two different programs in public policy at Harvard. Uh, at Kennedy School at Harvard. Uh, and then I'm also receiving my MBA at the same time from Wharton, uh, getting my uh, Wharton uh, degree from the University of Pennsylvania. So um, I'm learning a little bit about policy and a little bit about business in this dual degree program. Um, and I believe uh, the other panelists have already really touched on the in importance of inclusion for access. I can share that I have worked with NASA um, uh, JPL in the past, in the public, there's the public area and then there's the private area when it comes to the government. The government is much less willing to take on risks in their area. They create the policy um, and the policy was not to accept astronauts with disabilities historically. But I've been looking more at the private sector at this time, which is much more willing to take on those risks. And they have the money behind that. Now, of course, now when we're talking about the private sector, they have to receive monies from the government as well for uh, the space industry is also supplemented by the government. So we already have barriers in that public sector, why don't we look to the private sector as an alternative where they have their own money there and use that money in order to invest, to make space more accessible and more inclusive. So this is where my thinking lies is about the feasibility of becoming an astronaut with a disability. We really need to look to the private sector for that potential. 
because even under the umbrella of NASA or the NEA or um, those government sectors, the thinking is very different. And we really need to look to the private space to see where they can get the money they need, where the willingness is there to invest and make these changes happen. And I do believe it's going to eventually impact public policy. Uh, and NASA or the NEA will have to ultimately become more willing to include astronauts with disabilities as they look to the success and the progress happening in the private space. So yes, those are the barriers. It's policy and funding. And that is why our work is so important to really get out there, to be visible, to find who the investors are. And it's important that we ourselves are visible in these spaces so we can be included from the very beginning of these processes um, and be a part of this system to make it holistically more inclusive and financially more viable as we move into the future. A couple of weeks ago, I went to um, MIT has a new space age conference, which I attended, and there was a panelist who was talking specifically about their challenges in trying to find and hire people with disabilities. And I was sitting out there mm -hmm. attending to these comments and thinking, why don't you just hire people directly who have these disabilities, promote them, support them, elevate them, give them leadership opportunities to address what you find as challenges. Take advantages of our pool. We have so many skills here to offer you. So that was an experience from just two weeks mm. ago. Wow. Um, I, I would love, Jeff would just like to jump in and ask, uh, did were you able to share that view with the speaker and what was uh, their response if you did? Hmm. I didn't approach the speaker directly. I think maybe I should have. Um, but what I did say to the audience was we need more, more, they, they were talking about trying to have more babies born. We need more workers. That's what they were talking about when they were addressing the audience. So, um, but in the future, I do think that I would directly address this person. If they're having a difficult time finding necessary employees, I do think that I would approach them directly next time. Can, can uh, Astro Axis's Sherry Wells Jensen was there and reported to the leadership that she did oh, approach great. that person afterwards and say, if you need, Disabled people with disabilities, we're here. You just need to come find us. We are waiting for you and we are searching for you too. So can I just address one thing that, that Sheila said? Um, and that's you know with the, about the space in, industry or space agencies. ESA, you know, ESA recently selected uh, their first disabled astronaut. And so I believe that's the reason why NASA eventually will join the club because if they don't, they're going to get left behind. But yeah, it's great that ESA as a, as a big agency did it. They went ahead and, and, and it's, it's kind of embarrassing that NASA wasn't the first, you know. With the addition of Dr. McFall, who is a lower extremity amputee, ESA has gone there. Sheila is right. Virgin Galactic will get there first. They have a low paid lower extremity amputee customer wow. and they will fly within the next, if the schedule sticks, a uh, year or two. And thereby demonstrate that the risk may be no more than flying the average person 
to fly someone with a lower extremity amputation. So they have assumed the risk and will offset it via demonstration. Mm -hmm. So that will be Virgin Galactic if, if things hold. Mm -hmm. um, I, Dwayne, uh, your um, extremity was up. Would you like to speak or should I move yes. on to Lucas? Uh, yeah, so what I felt that was achieved through Astro Access <clears throat> showed the diversity of people in a zero-g environment. Um, generally, with large government organizations, they assume the lower risk. Now, I nicely fit into that lower risk category. I was sitting on, on the, when they were doing the ESA presentation back a couple of years back when they were doing the selection on the space. But I think what we saw on flight one and flight two with Astro Access shows that it doesn't need to be as complicated as they think because the tool sets that we bring from the diversity of the people that we had on that plane, oh, um, what from wayfinding on planes to, to lighting that helped me use the zero G portion of time better, which was built for Sheila. Um, there is so many cool tools, uh, wait, uh, haptic, haptic, uh, uh, watches and um, sound that allowed you guys to communicate in a very loud plane. There was some really amazing stuff that when you have diverse people of all disabilities there, you're going to get to a really good outcome. And uh, I'm glad that they're taking steps, but I think if we are taking more steps and we're demonstrating, uh, it should be open to all. Absolutely all, not a subset of that I fit nicely into. Now, if I was going to be quiet, I'd be like, cool, I get to go. Uh, <laughs> but no, this is about all of us. We all need to be get up there. Back to you. These flights have demonstrated some incredible technologies that benefit everyone, not just one group. So the haptics, the lighting, and also signing. So during mission two, members of medical operations began signing with each other and crew members because it was the most efficient and effective way to communicate in flight. It required no power. You could be oriented at any angle and it didn't <laughs> matter if the engines were kicking on and roaring, you could still make yourself known across a great distance. And these are all advantages brought from the disabled community into the space sector. And with that, Lucas, what do you think are some benefits that people with disabilities bring and um, to the space industry? And how do you see the, the challenges that remain perhaps being addressed uh, in the, the near future by members of the community? I think my answer is going to be super brief because uh, Sheila pretty much uh, said what I wanted to say, uh, which is good. It means we are aligned. Um, I think the biggest barriers uh, as part being part of like astronaut programs uh, is a little bit hard. I have been uh, going after some of the uh, the things that I should be trained on. For example, like uh, I, I know that uh, astronauts, they get like scuba dive uh, certificated. Um, anyway, uh, I think most of those are still not open to us, but we know it's possible. So I think we do have, uh, yeah, so I, I just would like to give like a shout out to Sheila here. I think she's one of the strong candidates we have uh, to being one of the first uh, Astra, so Astra Access astronauts we have. So yeah, I think that I, I think she covered everything I wanted to say in terms of the challenges part. Uh, I also totally agree with the private sector idea. I feel like the government is just too low to sometimes respond and take the risk, uh, which is not something we're not, we're not seeing that from the private sector. I think we're, we're having like a great reception. 
um, some of the benefits that I think people with disabilities bring. Um, it goes back to what Dwayne said. Sometimes when you ask us just at the end, uh, we may have solved your problem in the early beginning, much cheaper, much faster in a better way. Um, I say this because I work with software and it doesn't matter if it's software, hardware, processes, or even different uh, strategies anyone is trying to implement. Like it can be something super concrete or abstract as I listed in the examples here. The earlier you bring people with disabilities on, uh, the faster, and uh, I think we can, we can get like different uh, design ideas to solve a particular problem. I think that this is the biggest benefit. Yeah, that's certainly, as a member of the private space community, I am hearing that loud and clear. Yes, include include you, your community in the beginning. We'll, we'll save a lot of money and we'll also make it a whole lot better for, for, for everybody, really, including the able-bodied community will benefit as well as uh, those with disabilities. Very good, Lucas. Well, Sheila may have answered part of what you wanted to say, but she can't answer this question which is, do you consider yourself a career astronaut type or a space tourist, or do you consider yourself something else? And how do you think, you know, those systems that you were describing need to change to accommodate you, the community in general, but specifically people like you? I, I told people in the Astro Access team that I wanted to be the, the first blind astronaut, uh, although, I'm still in my research phase to decide um, how much of that is possible. And when I say this, it's not because I'm doubting all of my abilities, it's because I'm still looking problem after problem and I'm solving them. So some of those problems we I actually helped to solve. We had like a few questions whether a person that can see could move and orientate themselves very well in zero gravity. And I think I proved like beyond any doubt, I was able even to find Dwayne in the middle of the cabin and, you know, hug him in mid air, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, so I'm, I'm getting like problem after problem and uh, solving them. And I, I, I know there are still a bunch of problems that I don't know how to solve yet, but I'm trying to. So one of the, the next ones that I would like to try is to get a uh, scuba dive uh, cert certified um, because I know this is also a requirement. And yeah, and so I think I'll consider myself one more uh, with the aim, like if it's possible to be an astronaut, but I also admit that I'm still ignorant in a few subjects, but I'm trying to, I'm learning and I'm solving problem by problem. Awesome. Yeah, a, a path, a pathfinder in that, in that regard. All right, Sheila, same question although you may have already given the answer away about whether or not you consider yourself a career astronaut, space tourist, or something else, and what needs to change to accommodate more people like you, whatever they choose to do, be a space tourist or a career astronaut. Well, I know for sure, I would really love to be a career astronaut. If I had that opportunity, most certainly that's what I'd choose. But thinking about this, about the scuba diving certificate, I have four of them. Basic, advanced, deep, 
about 130 feet underwater. And Nitrox, which I've already experienced that deep diving. So having received those certificates and seeing how they might be useful and applying to other certificates with the FAA, I was able to look toward that. So I do also know how to fly. I am a deaf pilot as well. They allowed me to become a pilot as a deaf person. So during my training to learn to become a pilot is where I learned about different systems of flight and communication systems that were embedded and so many ideas within those systems, which we might have to hold for another podcast. But uh, from my experience learning how to fly, that's where I realized so many things that could be applicable to the space sector, specifically to becoming uh, an astronaut or being in a rocket. Uh, which automatically sometimes gets compared to traveling by plane. But there are different things that are controlled in a rocket, which is different than how things are controlled in an airplane. This past November, I went to Arizona for an analog astronaut training, which means that you are in a spacesuit, experiencing the pressure of the spacesuit, without the emergency, but understanding how you might escape in the case of an emergency, uh, of three days of intensive training and how to function in those suits. Um, and after all of those experiences that I've had as a scuba diver and a pilot and this experience I just described to you, I know that I'm looking at wanting to be a career astronaut, but communication, um, using lighting, having learning how to depend less on having to use headsets, um, I am able to spot to speak using my voice through a radio. However, being able to receive that information is more of a challenge. I struggle to really understand a specific word. So I think uh, luckily it's important that when you're speaking as a pilot, people use very structured, very um, uh, similar language um, when you're trying to approach an airport. So I listen for very specific words, the names of an airport, for example, or if there are other pilots around, um, I'll announce myself for safety purposes. So those strategies that I've been able to incorporate and don't really require me to do so much speaking on the radio, um, but I do have that option if I need to with a variety of strategies in place. I would, however, prefer not to rely on the radio so much. Um, I think it might be better to have options to be able to text or if there was a screen available to be able to, able to communicate using texting, um, using satellite, for example, um, collecting and sending data as a way to communicate. Why not? Uh, lights also are another way for us to be able to communicate with each other. And having those backup systems. So, for example, if one system fails, then we have built in alternative systems of communication, as I've just described them. So for deaf people in particular, we're very reliant on using video for communication. So if video could be incorporated. I think that, that could be very helpful, whether we're talking about being a pilot or an astronaut, which would benefit everyone. Um, right now, I'm not so happy with the quality in general of uh, the video quality might be an issue that might have to be addressed. But those are the things that I'm really hopeful about, areas that I hope to see improvements within those existing systems. Yeah, why well, why can't we text uh, over the radio for uh, for pilots, right? I mean, it seems pretty simple technology these days. Well, so far, as Sheila pointed out, 
flight has been one of these processes where universal design has been implemented. There's a standard alphabet. There are standard radio calls. There's a standardized language, meaning that anyone has access, more people have access. Now you could introduce some element of Morse code, make that visual and mm -hmm. increase accessibility. Morse code came first. So all of that is very possible. So to go to Dwayne and talk about what's possible and what do you consider yourself, a career astronaut candidate, a space tourist, a guide for future space tourists, and uh, what would need to change to accommodate yourself, people like you in those roles? As you can tell, I am not the big brain that Sheila is. I am your three-day space tourist. Um, <laughs> send me up there. It's a weekend. It's a beautiful view. It's it's an experience. It's a camping trip, right? That's uh, that's what that is. But what that is is that I'm the market share. I'm the person you're selling to. I'm the person that if you make it less complicated, I will send you. I will give you money, and we can go up there. And right now, there's only a handful, right? So there was what. Um, uh, inspiration for Jared's uh, next element is let's push that a bit further. Um, and what that is, is that price point is coming down. Um, that cost to serve based on what we understand Elon's doing and what uh, Blue Origin's doing, that price point's coming down real quick, which means it becomes that I'm a viable customer um, that you can potentially have a P&O space cruise. Uh, that likely the people that'll step into this area. Um, and if you want that to happen, it needs to be with less, less uh, technical uh, requirements. It needs to be that I can just go enjoy, be a passenger and come back down. And if you make it for me, it means that you're able to sell to every country and every, every space. And, that's what's going to be the interesting thing about this space. I'm I'm here as your client rather than the worker. And uh, that's going to be very useful for you. Um, and so that's the value of what we'll bring back to you. Fantastic. All right. Yeah. Dana, to you, more space camping trip or more space official space mission or something else? And what would it take to get you there? I'm, I'm drawn more to the... Um, the official astronaut candidate, although I'm not, I'm not sure I'm within the the age range that they would like. <laughs> uh, but um, but hey, John Glenn went up there, right? Um, and William Shatner. So I, you know, being an astronaut was always something I wanted to do. And um, the the zero gravity flight was was an amazing feeling. And at the same time, it was difficult, right? Because we have these very, very short moments of, of floating and then you're being pushed down to the floor, you know, one, almost double your weight. So that was tough. But uh, yeah, given an opportunity to actually be an astronaut and, and do the missions and work on the experiments, I would love it. And I think part of it is just because I've worked for NASA for so many years on the other end, I think it would be amazing to be, uh, up in space doing the experiments. I would love to. And what does it take? Well, I think I think the biggest challenge, I'm sorry, Shana, I forgot about your the second part of your question. Uh, I think the biggest challenge is just when you look at what, 
what the requirements are to, to be an astronaut, you know, we're still here on earth to do a lot of that stuff, to go through all the trainings, to do, to do all the tasks they want us to do. And so those are the things that they would have to look at and, and figure out, you know, how can we change it and make it possible to include more people. So it's, it's really, I mean, it's kind of boring, but it's the logistics. Logistics are really important. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, in space, I'm as capable as the next person because we're not relying on our legs, but the logistics of getting there, that's the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. But ultimately you see that as, as doable, just like all of these things. I mean, it is doable. As I said, the very first thing is, do you believe that, that we can? And, And if you do, then you'll help, you'll help to make it happen. And we just need people to be open enough to want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, again, speaking as the private uh, space industry representative here, it, it does come down to markets, right? If there's enough people mm-hmm. with your particular disability who want to go, we'll build it, right? I mean, yeah. we want to build it just to be fair and to be accessible anyway, but it does come down to money. Um, I'm I'm going to popcorn on you right now. If you build sure. it for us. Yes. If you build it for us, if, assuming that we're the, on the fringes, right? Um, what tends to happen is that if I'm missing a hand and I'm holding onto a phone and I need to make a phone order, um, I need to make an order for a cup of coffee. It's the same as me holding a baby and holding a phone and need to make that coffee order. Right. You build it for us. It scales for everybody. And yeah. so... And if you start with that viewpoint that you're building it for what you assume to be the normal human, what happens is then you're not actually excluding more people from it. So the mothers can't go, the the you know the the parent, all those different subgroups right. uh, that utilize accessible features because it makes their life easier. Uh, the ramps are built for us but it's being used by every worker. It's being used by every mom and uh, thing because it actually makes their life easier. The wayfinding is there for people with visual impairments. Uh, well, uh, sorry, blind and low vision, uh, I'm correcting the language there, but, uh, but making, sure that, making sure that it actually helps us because we're distracted with our phones and we're walking and the bright yellow light stops us from crossing the road and <laughs> incurring more issues. So you build it for the community first and everybody benefits. And so that's the value about display inclusion. Back to you. Right. And, it, and it's kind of the same with web accessibility too, because because a lot of the requirements for web accessibility, it's all around usability. Usability for everybody, not just your users with disabilities, but everybody. So that's another example of how it's, it's for, built for everybody, not just the population. Yeah, I mean, it honestly just sounds like it's a it's an opportunity to broaden our lens to think beyond just sort of a one particular type of person, but right. many different kinds of people, um, and many different situations that we find ourselves in. Yeah. At some point, everybody who is absorbing what we are saying through whatever means they do that will be out of the st- of the first standard deviation. At some point, we are all non, non-standard configuration or operation. And if we don't build the world to accommodate all the standard deviations, we are literally building it to exclude us 
individually and collectively at some point in our existences. Right. So why not right. build for everyone so everyone can use it all the time? It seems like such a simple question, which leads me to another question for you, Dana, which is what do you wish people would, I'm going to substitute the word see with appreciate. What do you think, what would you like people to appreciate about people with disabilities? I, you know, I, I think they, it'd be great if one day they could just look at us and instead of feeling sorry and, and guessing about what we can't do, look at us and be curious about what, what, what are all the cool things we could do? Cause we're an amazing community and um, there's a lot we could do that, that our AP counterparts can't. <laughs> so yeah, just be curious, be curious and, and know that, know that we're, we're just like you, you know, we have all the same desires and all the same wants and, and we're not any different in a lot of ways. This is so true. And there's something I've been meaning to apologize for, for a long time. I'll do that now. During mission one, when we were training on the ground in Long Beach, Katie Coleman, who was assigned to you, who is a mm, she's amazing, person. I love Katie. She's amazing, but she was hovering <laughs> when you were first training. Katie was literally hovering over you. And so I'm a doctor for people with disabilities. You can't tell what someone can do by looking at them. You can't tell what someone can do in any way, shape, or form except to ask them, "What can you do?" And perhaps even better, "What do you need to do what you're trying to accomplish?" If you need anything, I'm right here. Yeah, But Katie is not a doctor for people with disabilities. She's just a wonderful astronaut. And she was yeah. hovering. And I almost well, almost reached over to Katie and was like, Katie, just take a few steps back. Dana will tell you what she needs. Can, she I, needs. can I just say my <laughs> point of view during that day? You're talking about the day before, right? You're talking about the training, training day. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, uh, I, so just for everybody else to know what happened was I... I was trying to get to a point where I can get myself from the floor of the plane into the seat independently, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, <laughs> Katie does what most people do, and that's when they look at us and they see that we're doing it differently, and I'll, I have to do it differently because I have no legs, there's like a certain discomfort, you know? They're like, you know, like she said, you know, we, we could help you in the seat if you need it. And I go, yeah, yeah, I know but I just need, give me a minute to figure it out. And it took me maybe half an hour. <laughs> it took a while, but I finally found a method to do it. And the biggest problem was just because of my weight, I'm, I'm overweight, but, but, uh, but I will say, you know, I think it was hard for her, but I will say I love Katie because the next day I felt like it was 180 degree change and she was told, she felt totally, comfortable and I just love the fact that she was my partner I mean it couldn't have gone any more perfect than that so um yeah she's amazing and I'm so thankful and and I think I she also told me I, I taught her something too you know she learned a little bit more to be comfortable and to just let things happen the way they needed to happen and the bottom line is if I need help I'll ask really and and as it turned out I, I mean I'm I'm embarrassed to say it, but I did get nauseous at the last parabola. I did not throw up, just so you know. I didn't throw up, but I got nauseous. And so they used the last um, parabola to pull me into my seat. So at the end of the day, I did get help in the seat, but I needed to 
I needed to be comfortable knowing before going on the flight that I can get in the seat on my own if I had to. And that's all I wanted. Yeah. You were not the only person on that flight nauseous by the end or that needed assistance <laughs> getting back to their seat. That had nothing to do with your physical configuration. That's just being on a parabolic flight. you are being knocked around like a baseball. All right. To Dwayne, same thing. What do you wish people would appreciate about people with disabilities? Oh, just riffing off uh, Dana right there. It's um, we're usually dealing with the situation that you're just dealing with for the first time. Chances are we've been dealing with it for, I don't know, 37 years plus, right? So, And so that makes us experts in things that is new to you. And, um, and generally medical professionals usually see us at times that um at the time that when we are just in that situation brand new so the general assumption is well you can't do anything because and at that point in time we tend to agree because it's new to us too and so all those people who are new to disability they tend to feel that way um but medical professionals aren't the ones that have to get up and do the work. It's us who have to get up and do the work. And so we know exactly what we need to do and how we cope with it and how we manage it. Um, and so makes us pretty worldly and fairly smart for dealing with complex and new situations. And the good thing about right now as space, as, uh, as an industry, as an environment, it's younger than us. And we have been dealing with all the issues that you think you have to now deal with. Um, and if you just ask us, then obviously pay us at the same expert rates that you pay everybody else, you're going to get the outcomes that you're actually looking for. Uh, you're going to get the inclusion and the improvements for your technology uh, that gives you good infrastructure and service delivery uh, that helps you retain great employment. So um, I can tell you, display inclusion is not expensive and it's also profitable uh, because the company that I've created, Minds of Play, where we play Dungeons and Dragons and Minecraft to help with social communication skills, has 50% people with disabilities, 50% female, 28% LGBTQIA. We've had last, last year, we ran for six months of service delivery with no canceled sessions in a year. Currently, we operate at a space of service delivery that is 8.7 days per week. I'll say that again. We play 8.7 days a week. That's mm -hmm. and and we provide that with that level of diversity and embracing the technologies that are there and embracing the the skills that are available for the community, building it by the community for the community. And when you do that, it's it's absolutely brilliant. It's profitable. And that's what, you, if you want to think about it from that type of way, from a business perspective, take that away for yourself. But from our side, it's a case of it's proper inclusion, and therefore people want to be part of that. And if you build for us, we will come and we will spend money with you. Back to you. All right. Uh, to Sheila, same question. Uh, what do you wish people appreciated about people with disabilities or the disabled community in large? Well, I wish that people didn't just look at us as a person with disability and only see us through that frame. For example, I'm a deaf woman. I want you to see me and understand that deafness is part of who I am. 
It's just one thing about me. One of many things about me. What's really important is to look at us as an equal, not as anything less than, but as an equal. Anything you can do, we can do, just like you can. I'm not any different than you are. It's also very important to include us in networking, social opportunities. The things that you wanna do are probably very similar to the things that I wanna do. So why not be more inclusive? Now, because I am in a grad school program, a dual program between Harvard and Wharton, I wanna emphasize that I'm looking at leadership opportunities. And this comes up again and again, something that I really ruminate on as I look around at my classmates, my peers, if you will, all of them are not deaf, they're all hearing. Some of them might have different disabilities, but no one else is deaf except myself in the setting. And so I look out at this society and the world where we really don't have a lot of top leaders out there with disabilities, like Fortune 500 companies, uh, investors with disabilities. It's really difficult to find those people in those positions. I think that really goes back to employment opportunities, employing people, and employing specifically people with disabilities who are struggling to have job opportunities and then allowing them to move up into the company, giving them further opportunities with supports, allowing them to move up into your company uh, to support them and give them a variety of skills. Um, so I see similar situations to the experiences women have hit with a glass ceiling. I see similar experiences. There's research showing about offering trans skills, sharing skills between people with disabilities, where we see the sector of women also really struggling to advance, where men are promoted uh, from one department to another department and move seamlessly through a company until they might even be able to become CEOs. When we take a look at those candidates, we typically see men because the world is more accessible to them, allows them to um, improve their skills, to add to their skill sets very naturally as a part of our basic knowledge. So I would say, why can't we have those same opportunities for people with disabilities? Give them more opportunities, provide them with more tools, accessible resources, so that they too can become leaders in our environment. Amen to that. And Lucas, before I ask you the same question, would you please tell us briefly about Space Jesus? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, was, I was talking a little bit about this before. Uh, during our last Astrax mission, uh, I think we we just got along very well, everyone in the team. We were doing something that uh, was important, was was technical, but at the same time, uh, we had this like friendship around. And at some point, we just started like giving nicknames to everyone. Uh, and Dwayne, of course, it had to be him. Uh, he came up with this, <laughs> this silly idea of, the, of calling me Space Jesus. But I think the, the nickname was actually solidified because in the last parabola, um, we, uh, so for 15 parabolas, I had experiments to do, but I had like uh, two or three free parabolas to do whatever I wanted. And in one of them, I decided I'm going to put, like, put my feet on the wall here and give like a small impulse and fly through the cabin. And I was like flying through the cabin. Dwayne was like recording like a video, like doing a selfie, whatever. And I met him <laughs> mid air and I hugged him. And he was like, he was like, 
in the video like oh here we are floating in space like with this boring voice and then when he saw me he was like so happy like space jesus and then he, we, space just, jesus! <laughs> we just start screaming um so i, I mean it was just like a, a little bit of fun to end uh the serious stuff so yeah and it just <laughs> just yeah that's 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 how it started it, it, it's how it definitely ended for sure it's it's with that it's he he was just walking through the halls with such an awe and i'm like there's no way he's a brazilian daredevil this is definitely the statue that stands in brazil um and that is definitely lucas and then when he flies graciously towards my face i found space jesus um, and we had a beautiful moment of sharing how we then need to go to space and stay there for ages and it was absolutely lovely and i'm i'm yeah. anytime i see him i have to yell out at the top of my lungs space jesus <laughs> yes that's yeah that's and that's the story all right well yeah. lucas aka space jesus what do you wish that people in general appreciated about humans with disabilities and what is your dream job? Cool. Is your dream job to be Space Jesus? No. So I have another. Okay. Um, I one thing I, I think people should appreciate for uh, about us more is the fact that I think no one can deny uh, that we go through some difficult things. We have difficult problems, but we have shown again and again that we are able to solve those problems. And I keep like using the word problems because this is how I see them. Like, it's just like a problem. It's not like a, a full limitation. I think it's just a problem that exists in time and we try to solve it and we are solving it. And like little by little, we are advancing uh, inclusion. Um, so if people already agree with us that we go through some difficult things and we have difficult problems and we are showing that um, we are solving those problems, uh, it means that we are capable of uh, continue to solve them more and more. We just need more opportunities. About my dream job. Um, so what I wanted, um, right now I'm a software engineer. Um, I work for Google when I was in college. Um, I never thought that I could actually work for Google. Uh, it didn't occur to me that I was smart enough at the time, uh, but it happened. So in a way, I think I already have my dream job. Oh. Awesome. Part-time Messiah, full-time Google engineer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila, what is your dream job? Well, my dream job. Well, if I can't become an astronaut, I would love to be an investor. I'd love to have the money available to me to invest in causes that I care about, in organizations I want to support, people who are deaf or people with disabilities in those communities. I'd really love to be able to invest and just throw money at those communities. Um, so yes, I suppose an investor, a philanthropist. Also, I really would love to travel and see the world it's a short list, I know, but those are my my dream jobs. Excellent. I love those choices. Well, George Whitesides did it. I think you should be able to do it too. 
Dwayne, what is your dream job? Um, my dream job? Oh, comedian is definitely like side hustle. Um, <laughs> My, um, I, do, I don't believe in a dream job, hilariously. I, I do where the dopamine takes me, and apparently I've been doing that for a while. It started off as stair climbing. It started off as um, these other bits and pieces. But discipline inclusion has been like a center focus. Um, I do love travel. My name is Dwayne Fernandez, which apparently means Dwayne has got a Gaelic intervention for being dark. And Fernandez is a son of... Fernando, which is traveler. So I am the dark traveler. Uh, and so the dark traveler needs to get himself a couple of days in space. And so that's part of my journey and why I'm, there's a link there. Um, and so for myself, the dream job is basically driving and bringing people, as many diverse people together. And uh, that is never sits under one specific category. I have to learn different skills to bring different types of people into that space. And once I learn it, I understand enough of it that I appreciate the community that does that piece of work um, so that I can then understand how to help them understand our community. And so basically it's just change maker, project managers, kind of what I do. And so that's, that's where I see myself. And it never really has a standard title but I will keep doing what I have to do to while I still have energy to do it. Um, and then we'll find somebody else to pass it on. All right. Dana, what is your dream job? If you could have anything. Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I love working for NASA, but my dream job would, would be to be more uh, directly tied to enabling um disabled astronauts. I mean, to be, I don't know whether that's being like an administrator, making sure that that initiative goes through or, or helping implement it, but I would love to like have a job that's more directly tied to that where I could just focus on it. Uh, no matter what job I do, uh, I, I'm always speaking up for disability justice, always. So it really doesn't matter what I do, but it'd be great if I had a job doing it and I got paid to do it. <laughs> yeah, so I could really just spend the time to focus on it instead of squeezing it in here and there. Oh, here, here. That's, I mean, I think from what you guys have all described, you're already doing parts of your dream jobs already, maybe with the exception of the investor, but I'm sure you'll get there, Sheila, one way or the other soon yeah. enough. Yeah, and uh, uh, love to help all of you get to your dream job in whatever way we can. Um, and part of that is by continuing this dialogue. Uh, I really appreciate hearing from all of you, hearing your perspectives, hearing your advice, and how to think about the idea of disability access as really being universal access, the title of our, of our show today, but really the, the reality of making it accessible for everybody, both able-bodied yeah. and those with disabilities. So yeah. Um, yeah. Any last thoughts before we conclude? I'm I'm about to wrap things up. If, can I say one thing, Jeff? Please. Yeah, I just I just want to say, Jeff, that I'm so uh, I'm I'm really thankful that you that this is important to you and that you took the initiative to to make this podcast and to support the cause. And it's uh, it's nice to hear that it's taken you know it's taken off and people are beginning to realize it. But uh, disability access is, is human access. 
really that's how we feel that's why we're doing it we have to and we want to yeah you bet so any last thoughts from anyone else i'd like to add something sure all of us have been involved with astro access and as a listener for the audience out there if this is something that you want to support, if you want to support us or you want to support people in general with time or money, or if you want to hire us as a consultant, please reach out to us. And we'd be happy to figure out a way to collaborate and work together. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, giving that shout out, Sheila, to your wonderful organization. And uh, astroaccess.com is your website, yes? We'll put the link in the description. <laughs> I yeah. never know. <laughs> you, you bet. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you all once again. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to share your personal stories, your insights, your passions. And uh, we're going to make this a universally accessible space, you know, and it starts with, uh, uh, with one person at one organization and balloons out to be uh, the entire space industry. That's how I see it. So I just want to personally thank Dwayne, Lucas, Dana, Sheila, the ASL translators, Donna and Heidi, and Dr. Shana Gifford, my co-moderator here for your, your time today and your interest in uh, participating. And for all of the listeners out here uh, who have been, uh, some of you have been loyal listening to many of our podcasts over the past year, um, where we've been doing this now for more than a year. I'm very proud of it. I'm really excited to be doing more panel discussions on uh, uh, more access from different uh, walks of life and uh, hearing your stories about space. So uh, we'll be doing more of those as time goes on. If you have any discussions for future discussion topics, any suggestions for future discussion topics or specific people you'd like us to interview, please let us know. Email us at ourfutureinspace at above.space or abovespace.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at Our Future Space or Facebook at Our Future In Space. And if you like what we're doing at Above Space and are interested in contributing in other ways, please feel free to send us an email to info at above.space. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, be safe. And, uh, Thank you. At Astra. Bye. Bye-bye. Represents the personal opinions of the hosts and their guests. The content, opinions, and views do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Above Space, nor the organizations with which any of the program participants may be affiliated. The mere appearance or promotion of this program does not constitute an endorsement by Above Space nor its affiliates.